Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Anne-Marie Binsner. Anne-Marie is the Executive Director of Court Appointed Special Advocate, or CASA, in Prince George's County, Maryland. Hi, Anne-Marie. Welcome to the Aging Out Institute podcast, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. How are you today? Hi, Lynn. I'm terrific. Thank you so much for having me. We're very happy to have you here and to find out more about what your organization does. Could you share a little bit about your background and how is it that you were connected with the foster care system and came to be where you are now? Sure, thanks. So I have been working with foster youth for the better part of the last 19, nearly 20 years as the executive director of Court Appointed Special Advocate. I have been with the program in Prince George's County, Maryland from its very beginning. I was the first executive director and went from a staff of one to our current staff of 14 over the last 20 years. Prior to that, I worked with children and youth in Washington, D.C. who were homeless and living with their families in transitional housing. We ran after-school programs, summer programs, and we did educational advocacy and training with their parents. Um, helping their parents to learn to navigate the uh, school system and to learn how to advocate on behalf of their children. The advocacy role in, in my previous job was the part that I enjoyed the most. And when I saw the opportunity to work for CASA, which advocates for children and youth in the foster care system, I was extremely excited to pursue that opportunity and was lucky enough to be hired by the, their board of directors. Wow, that's terrific. Now, when you were working with homeless prior to CASA, I'm wondering how many youth did you run into who came out of the foster care system? Because that's a big challenge for young people who are leaving the system is finding housing. Yes, so we had a program for reunification when I worked in Washington. There were, over the years, maybe four or five families at a time who were living in our transitional housing units as a condition of reunification with their parents. So it was the, the first opportunity I had to be connected to foster youth, although those children had been reunified and very often their cases had been already closed. Oh, okay. Hopefully for the better for them. Hopefully for the better, almost always for okay, the better. Okay, good. <laughs> and they were with us in receiving additional support and services for at least two years while they were in our program. Okay, great. A lot of people are becoming more aware about the challenges that young people face leaving foster care. And one of them, of course, is housing. And I think the statistic is somewhere around 25% of young people aging out of foster care face homelessness. Now, it depends on how you define homelessness. Um, but I believe it's up to 25% if you include like couch surfing, when you don't actually have your own roof over your head, but you're kind of bouncing from place to place to place. So, you know, that's a significant number there. It is definitely a significant number and it is a very urgent need, especially in the Washington DC metropolitan area where the cost of housing is so high. Our young people exit foster care and even if they have a job, they don't always have uh, a living wage that enables them to find an apartment and live independently. 
Many of them struggle with finding affordable housing. And because young people, especially transition-aged youth, they don't want to consider themselves homeless. And so couch surfing and other kinds of activities in order to find themselves a place to stay is what becomes the default. So their stability is really impacted by, you know, not having a place where they know where they're going to be able to stay, not only tonight, but maybe a week from now or three months from now. Yeah, I think the stable housing is the key phrase. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what is it that your CASA does? We've interviewed an individual in a CASA before, so our listeners might be familiar with the concept of CASA. But just in case, if you could share about what CASA is and what it is that you do to help foster youth. Absolutely. So CASA recruits and trains volunteers from our community who are then appointed by the court to advocate for the best interest of children and youth who are living in foster care. Our volunteers come from all walks of life with all kinds of backgrounds, experiences. And what really is the common factor is that our volunteers care about children and want to make sure that they have the services and the resources that they need in order to thrive and be well. What a volunteer does is they are matched one-on-one with a young person. They get to know the child, they understand their background, but more importantly, they understand their current circumstances, what they might need in order to be reunified with their family or relative, or in the case of many of the young people that we work with, because they are older, we are working to help them transition to independence at the age of 21. So our volunteers gather information, learn about the child and their circumstances, share that information with the parties to the case. So the social services, their attorneys and the courts. And we make recommendations about what is best for that child. And we explain to the court what we've learned. We let them know what resources are available in the community that might be able to support the children. And then we ask the court to order those resources and services for the benefit of the children. And then from there, we keep moving, we follow up, we make sure that they make that connection, that the service is providing the resource that they need. And we keep everyone involved and everybody informed so that our young people can exit foster care as quickly as possible, or if they're going to remain in care until they're 21, exit foster care as successfully as possible. Mm -hmm. And the volunteers that you have, how many do you work with? So we work with about 215 children each year. And we have probably 175 to 185 volunteers. Our county is a little bit bigger than that. We could be serving upwards of about 500 children. And so we are working to grow in order to meet that need as well. Right. That was going to be a question. Does every foster youth have a CASA volunteer? Not yet, but we are working on it. Yes. That would be terrific if that were possible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so what initiates the partnership with CASA? Is it just an automatic, hey, we have a young person going into foster care, let's contact CASA? Or is there some kind of situation that initiates that partnership? So every magistrate or judge is different. So when a child comes into care or a teenager comes into foster care, the very beginning of the case, For the very first time when the judge adjudicates a child as in need of assistance, which is kind of the legal term for entering foster care, that is the point at which a CASA volunteer can be appointed by the court. Ultimately, it is the court that decides if a CASA volunteer is appointed. 
The parties can also ask. So a parent or a social worker can ask for a CASA volunteer as well. Um, and when we receive that court order is when it initiates the services offered by our program. And so we take that referral, we, we get the information that we need, and then we find the right volunteer. So when our volunteers complete training, we have learned a lot about that volunteer. We learn about the skills that they can bring into this position. We learn about their passion and their interest, and we match it with a young person who we think that they will be able to do the best job for. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there some kind of, I don't want to use the word probation, <laughs> some kind of <laughs> period where the adult and the youth can get to know each other a little bit and see if it's a good fit and if it isn't, make a change? So we definitely try to avoid changing volunteers once we've made a match. And, you know, the reason for that is there's been, there's a revolving door of people in the lives of our children, and we don't want our volunteers to be one more person that comes and goes. Certainly, certain circumstances come up where we've not done our best to make a match, and we would make a change or consider a change, but we do our best to get to know the volunteer prior to uh, assignment and to learn as much as we can about the young person prior to assignment so that we can bring that together. And we also, every volunteer is provided support from a professional case supervisor who works for our organization. And they help our volunteers through some of those bumps in the road. You know, teenagers who have been hurt are not messing around with adults who they don't trust. And so we definitely need to provide support and training to our volunteers so that they know how to negotiate a relationship with a young person, especially if that young person has some doubts about that, you know, the other new person coming into their life. Right, right. I mean, I can imagine that in some cases, you would have some volunteers who are working with some young people who, like you're saying, they don't trust people. They might even do things to sabotage the relationship because one, they might not want to get close to anybody and just have them leave. How many times has that happened to some of these young people, myself included? I mean, when I was in foster care, we moved so many times and I just didn't want to get close to anybody anymore at schools, for example. I don't want to get close. We're just going to end up leaving. And so I would imagine that there might be maybe some training needed there to help the volunteers understand how to work with these youth who have gone through so many issues and, and difficulties in their life. Absolutely true. So we provide um, 30 hours of training to our volunteers before they ever even accept a case. And if we are assigning a volunteer to a young person who is 14 or older, they receive 10 more hours of training on working uh, with the older youth who are in foster care. We really need to help our volunteers understand what you just described, that, you know, that distrust of adults and the fear of getting close. Once a volunteer breaks through the barriers, that relationship is forever, but it can be really hard. And we sometimes see periods of great positive relationship building, and then something happens, something goes wrong, and the child just shuts it down. And that's when the volunteer needs to redouble their efforts. You've got to prove to the child that you're there for them, even when they push you away. And, you know, it's not about us as the adults. So we have to kind of take our hurt feelings and, 
you know, the, but I'm just a volunteer out of it. <laughs> you know, this is really about making positive impact in the life of a person. You know, it can't be about our feelings. And, and that's hard. That's hard for our volunteers. They get mad too. They have feelings, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, right. so we have the, you know, the professional case supervisors there to help our volunteers through that, to think about new ways, new tactics. You know, we have a volunteer once who was working with a young person. She was, I think, about 16, and the volunteer was kind of like grandmotherly. And this girl said, I'm not talking to you. And the volunteer was like, okay, well, I'm required to visit you twice a month, so I'll see you in two weeks. And she came every two weeks and sat on that girl's couch, I think, for four months before she talked to her. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But she showed up every single time. And they are still together. Yep. She proved to her that she was she was sticking around. <laughs> yes, she did. And that's a very extreme example, but that volunteer could teach class on how to not make it about her. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. Do you partner with social workers? Because you mentioned social workers could refer but how do you work with social workers because they're visiting the young people as well so what's that relationship like so we do our very best to make the relationship with the social workers as positive as possible we want the social workers to know that we are there to help uh, help the child but also to potentially help them you know everyone working with a child and their family wants what's best for that young person So if we continue to look at it from that perspective, then we can find ways that we can help each other. And so, you know, social workers have 20 or more cases that they are working at the same time. They are very frequently responding to emergencies, urgent situations. And so we have to be patient and understanding that our urgent issue may not be the most urgent issue that they're facing that day. And we want to make sure that we respect the efforts that social workers put into working with these families. But we also know that because of our one-on-one work with the children, that we really do know what is best, what the children need, what might be behind some behaviors or some, what might be considered, you know, poor behavior. We know what's behind that and we can address it. And it would be great if we could express that to the social worker as well so that we're all on the same page and that we're all working towards what's, you know, what's the goal. Yeah. Something that I have come across over and over again is that social workers are swamped. The number of cases that they have to work with and and particularly in a, a city area like yours, it's got to be so difficult to manage all of the cases that they have. I do not envy the social workers their job and I don't think that I could do it. You know, as long as I've been working in child welfare and with children in foster care, I don't think I could do their job. I want to make their job easier. And at the same time, I want to make sure that the children get, you know, what is in their best interest. Right, exactly. So you had mentioned earlier that you're not serving every foster youth in Prince George's County, but you're working toward that. That would be the goal. So what happens if the court recommends your services or somebody refers you to uh, to the court for services and you just don't have any volunteers? Do you refer them then to another organization? How does that work out? 
So that would be our wait list. Mm, okay. There are no other organizations that do exactly what CASA does. And so certainly while the young people are waiting for a CASA, there are other services that they can be provided. And um, it would be our hope that the Department of Social Services can make those referrals. But often it's when a CASA volunteer gets involved that the amount of resources and services that are offered increases because we are looking for more rather than the minimum. We want to identify their needs and the additional services that will meet those needs, and we have the time to do that. If we have some folks listening who were interested in becoming a volunteer, ideally at your CASA, but maybe another CASA near them, how can people connect with you to volunteer? Sure. The easiest way to connect with us is through our website, which is pgcasa.org. And from there, they will find everything that they would need in order to learn about becoming a volunteer, as well as how to contact us you know, more directly if they'd like to speak to someone. Nationally, if they were interested in learning more about CASA in another region other than the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., they can go to nationalcasagal.org. Okay. What does GAL stand for? So GAL stands for guardian ad litem. In some states, CASA is the model, court-appointed special advocate. And in some states, GAL, guardian ad litem, is the model. It has to do with the jurisdictions and the legal position in which CASA is involved in the case. So some states, CASAs are parties to the case. They are volunteers who are represented by attorneys and are parties to the case. In Maryland, they are CASAs and they are friends of the court, but we are the same. We are under the same umbrella and we do the same work as volunteers, but we just have different models, different legal requirements, I guess. It's nationalcasagal.org and then you'll be connected to the one closest to you. Okay, great. Thank you for that information. So why have CASA volunteers at all? I understand that having that adult advocate for the young person is absolutely helpful. I get that. But what would happen if CASA didn't exist? What would the youth be experiencing then? I think that if CASA did not exist, there would be a loss in relationship, number one. I think that the one-on-one -on -one relationship between the youth and their volunteer is critically important. And for some of them, it will last their whole life. In addition to that loss, I truly believe that CASA volunteers impact service provision. We impact the length of time a child remains in foster care. I think that we bring resources to families and to other potential caregivers, like permanent caregivers, that may be lost otherwise. There are multiple examples of a CASA volunteer spending time with a relative and helping them to understand what their role might be if they were to become a permanent guardian. We have spent dozens of hours helping mothers to fill out all the forms and the paperwork for public housing or for Medicaid or food stamps, the things that might be the barrier between her and her children coming home the time that a social worker truly doesn't have. A referral is important, but it isn't always enough. They sometimes need the additional support and help in order to complete the referral. 
There are so many examples, the issues that the parents face, substance abuse, mental health, domestic violence, where a volunteer can step in and walk a family through process, provide them support when things get rough, help them, you know, have somebody to call and talk to when they don't understand why their children are acting out. You know, those are services that a CASA volunteer can and does provide. And there's no way you could expect that of a Department of Social Services social worker. They don't have the time. The best ones that I've ever met can't do all of that every day. So it sounds like there's a lot of time involved with the work that the volunteers do. How many hours does a volunteer typically spend doing their volunteer work? When I speak so highly of all of the things that our volunteers do, I I tend to scare people away from the volunteer (laughs) position because they think that it is so many hours and every minute of every day. A typical volunteer spends 10 to 12 hours per month working on their case. Oh, okay. The majority of their time is one-on-one visits with the children. And then the rest of their time is communicating with the different parties to the case, as well as the professionals and the family members who are involved. That's not an everyday thing. It's not an every week thing. Checking in, providing you know information, and then stepping in where they can with other professionals, maybe a school visit, maybe a conversation with mom or dad or grandma, communicating with foster parents, providing some important information to them. That's what they spend their time doing. Right. What would you say are the biggest benefits for the volunteers themselves? Obviously, a lot of benefits for the young person, which is the whole point. But what do the volunteers get out of it? People volunteer because they want to give back to their community. They want to feel like they are using their time in a worthwhile pursuit. But our volunteers get as much from helping a young person as the children do. The role of a CASA volunteer is one where it might take a while, but you actually see the impact of what you're doing. You go to court, you make a recommendation, and the judge accepts your recommendation and orders that service. And you get to see that the service is now helping to improve the life of the child or the youth that you're working with. And so you get to see the benefits. Sometimes those are some really long-term benefits. Um, They are still teenagers. They are still children. It's not like a change overnight, but you get to see that change and you also get a relationship with a young person that you care about. And so getting that relationship, getting that feeling of being needed, you know, that's what keeps volunteers staying with us. It's not just that they come and go. It's that it's why once a CASA, always a CASA. I would imagine, I'm, I'm just guessing here, that you might have young people who, as they get older and they've had this relationship, that maybe the CASA volunteers are invited to weddings or invited to family events, get to meet children, that type of thing. Does that happen? Eventually it does, yes. I know it takes time. <laughs> it does take time. When they are working with the children, confidentiality is key. We ask our volunteers not to include the children that they're working with into their own families. Mm, This is a private relationship. This is not something where you can suddenly bring the young person to your own family barbecue or Christmas dinner. Right. There are mentoring programs that use that model. There are, but these children are in foster care and their confidentiality um, is really pretty important to us that we're not introducing them all around town as 
you know, this is Jane. She's a foster child that I work with. But that doesn't mean that our volunteers are not a big, huge part of the life of the child. We've been to high school graduations, college graduations. We've been the person that's taken the children to get their driver's license, who has helped them cash their first check for their first job. Big milestone events in the lives of the children. And and then when the case closes, then it's a mutual relationship. If the youth is an adult, they can decide for themselves to continue the relationship. If the youth is a minor, then in conversation with their parent or legal guardian, the relationship can continues and often does. And that's when you get into the weddings and the, you know, all those other exciting events where people become part of your family and you become the CASA volunteer becomes the permanent person in that child's life. We can't make that happen. We can't force it. But when it happens, it's beautiful. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I guess you just have to caution the adults who are coming into this that that's not a guarantee. No, it's not. <laughs> and we, we certainly talk about how that's not even your primary role. Right. Your first role is best interest advocate. Mm-hmm. The benefit of being a really good best interest advocate is that you get to have a personal relationship that can last forever. That's the bonus. What would you say might be a few characteristics of a volunteer that would be a good fit for CASA? So the characteristics, I think, certainly somewhat stable in terms of, you know, you're going to be in the area for a while. You don't have plans for a huge life change, right? You're not about to move to a different state or change from one job to another that requires a much more intense commitment to your role. And being in a place where you can give to a young person without requiring a lot right back from the very beginning. And then flexibility and the ability to self-motivate. We ask volunteers to see the children twice per month, but we don't tell them it's Tuesday at five o'clock. You make the appointment, you schedule it, you communicate with people and you make your own schedule because it, you know, we don't have a center where everybody comes and spends time. You go out to the community, you meet them at their home, you meet them at the park, whatever is best. And you need to be able to initiate all of that and follow through. And so flexibility and self-motivation are pretty important. So if you have somebody who was working full-time, say like an eight to five job, is that a bit of a challenge for CASA volunteers? Or do you find that people are able to work this into even that kind of schedule? We have found that people can work that into their schedule. Like 65% or more just about of our volunteers work full-time. Flexibility is important. Occasionally being able to send off an email or return a phone call during eight to five would be really helpful because social workers work the same hours that you do and you want to be able to reach them from time to time, but it's not an everyday thing. And weekends and evenings are when you're going to see the children. And so you definitely, flexibility is important. We do have quite a lot of volunteers whose employers give them the ability to do volunteer work. And when we have court, which is about every four to five months, and you know four months in advance when you have court, so you can ask for that time off. And a lot of employers really promote volunteerism among their staff and allow for that. Yeah, that's great. I was just wondering because I was thinking there might be some listeners thinking, well, I can't do it if I work full time, but it sounds like it's doable. It is totally doable. And you're supported 100% by your case supervisor Mm -hmm. for those times when you just can't be flexible. 
Okay. And how about right now in the midst of our COVID-19 pandemic, are your volunteer visits virtual? And then what about courts? Are courts open? We had to become 100% virtual overnight. So we went from in-person visits twice per month to virtual visits by Zoom or Google Hangouts. And we asked our volunteers, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, to increase that to once a week to make sure that our kids were okay. We knew how the pandemic was impacting everyone. So we know that our young people have even more to deal with. And their lives went from being full of therapeutic supports and visitation with family to lockdown for a lot of them in a stranger's house or in their own apartment all by themselves for the first time with nowhere to go and no one to see. We asked our volunteers to increase the amount of time that they were reaching out to the youth just to make sure that everybody was adjusting. The courts remain virtual here. So we have been doing hearings since May on Zoom, (laughs) uh, which has been moving right along. We've continued to have our same types of hearings, but we have not been able to be in the courthouse. We haven't been able to be in person for team meetings where we all come together to talk about what the plan is for the youth, whether, you know, transition planning and emergency interventions, all of those have been done virtually and our office is still closed. We are for the most part working virtually supervising our volunteers from our home offices. And how did the young people fare as far as the technology is concerned? Because I can't imagine that all the foster youth had the laptops and or the phones to be able to connect to these meetings. That is very true. So the young people who are in foster homes, the school system and the Department of Social Services responded pretty quickly in getting devices to the homes. You know, of course, our teenagers have smartphones, but what they don't always have is money to pay the bill. And so we were able to get some emergency funding from foundation partners and from our state government contractors to be able to provide cell phone stipends to our young people, uh, especially those who are living in their own apartments or who were living with relatives who were caring for them suddenly without any real in-person backup or support. So from April until August, we were paying some cell phone bills. We also were providing grocery cards to our transition age youth who are in their own places so that they had enough to be able to buy groceries and and keep food in the house because they couldn't be going anywhere. And a lot of them who were working are no longer working because they were in industries where there were a lot of layoffs. And then they were also going to school remotely. So anyone who was in community college or going to four-year university, they were suddenly at home all day trying to finish out their semester and now start their semester online. We did have one volunteer who donated a laptop. It wasn't even her youth, but she was in college and now, and so she was able to have a laptop to finish her semester because she was doing it on her phone and she didn't even tell anybody. She was just doing it on her phone. Wow. I can imagine there might have been some volunteers themselves that needed a little boost to get caught up with the technology. Yeah. So (laughs) yes, we had a couple of tutorials on Zoom and tutorials on Google Hangouts. You know, most people know how to use um, FaceTime, but that requires two iPhones. And so who knows what everybody has. 
And so, yes, there have been quite a few meetings where we've seen just the tops of people's heads and we've had to help people <laughs> with the videos. But for, you know, our volunteers, it was really surprising to me and just so gratifying because no one said no. I sent out this email and said, I need you to see these kids once a week. I need you to find out what they need, what services aren't there anymore. Are they getting enough food? Do they have enough contacts with their relatives? Are they, how's school going? No one pushed back. Not one volunteer said, hey, it's a pandemic and I am overwhelmed. Yeah. No one. So I was just so amazed by their commitment and just making sure that the kids are doing okay because we're still home. We're all still home. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the young people who are aging out during this pandemic, though? How does Maryland handle that? I know in some places they've extended the time frame so that youth didn't have to age out during the pandemic, but how is it looking in your area? So Maryland did that. I am grateful to Maryland for extending the time. Anyone who aged out from April 1st will be able to stay in care at this point through December 31st. We are already advocating and asking Maryland to consider extending that. Ideally, they would extend it to six months past the end of the pandemic, whenever that is. To give young people a chance to get out there and interview and do all the things they need to do to get their life started. Yes. And one of the federal bills that's pending, the HEROES Act, includes this extension across the country. You know, I know that federal government is negotiating this as we speak, but I would hope that they would remember to include our foster youth in that and keeping them in care past their 21st birthday in order to keep them stable so that they don't age out to such a very frightening and unstable period. Foster children are, we are their parent. The state is their parent, and we have to make sure that they have a safety net. That's my hope. I'm, I'm really pleased and proud of Maryland for what they've done so far, but we definitely have to keep going with that. Right. Well, that's a good segue into my next question is, what do you think that federal or state governments can do to improve the situation that older foster youth face when they have to transition out of the system, not just in the current situation with COVID, but just generally speaking? For me, the most important thing when we're working with transition-aged youth is letting youth lead the way to their own solutions. That is part of the federal and the state plan. They, they certainly talk about how youth should lead their transition planning process, that youth should have a place at the table and that youth should identify the rest of their team. That is how it's structured and how we're all trained. But the reality is that that is super time consuming. And our current child welfare system is not set up for anything that is time consuming. There's too many children and there's not enough social workers. There's not enough resources. There's not enough hours in the day to finish all of the needs. And we're not even asking youth to lead the discussion. There are so many times that I come to a meeting and paperwork is slid across the table at, to the youth and they're asked to sign it. And it's their transition plan. They didn't even know what it was. That is what I believe we can and should change. I don't fault the system. I understand there's not enough hours in the day, but that is the thing that we could change. Well, don't you think that the state governments could partner with local organizations to do that? 
I mean, it seems like there could be a partnership or relationship there to make that happen, just like they do with CASA. Let's extend this and bring in other mentoring programs or, you know, other transitional housing programs that can help do this type of work. Absolutely. And I think that there are programs and certainly CASA is one of them that are positioned to be able to do this planning really well, where we could bring together all of the the people the youth identify as important in their life and hold these planning meetings and not only ask the youth for their goals, but identify who around the table is going to be responsible for working with the youth to achieve those goals. And then we can hold them accountable. Then we can check back in and see how it's going. And we can change the plan as we need to. If we review it every six months, we can make changes. And we have to leave space for the children and the to change their mind. You change your mind about what you want to be when you grow up like a hundred times between 18 and 21. And we've got to make space for that to be okay. And also we have to do more than just let them decide that they're going to not go to school anymore. I'm going to drop out. I'm not going to finish. I'm not, it's too hard. It's, we got to do more to support them to complete their education, whatever that might be. It might be post-secondary training. It might be college. It might be an apprenticeship, but finding what fits for them and getting them through it. Because if we don't get them through education and through some employment training that will lead to a job that will sustain them, well, then they're just into the next system. We've got to push through that. And I know that the people at the federal level and the people at the state level, they are planning this way. The money has to follow. The will has to follow. And we've got to shift how all of us are looking at our caseload and start looking at them as teenagers and who I am responsible for, and not just a box that I got to check. Right. Well, it really seems like CASA would be a terrific organization to start that kind of work, that support service, extend your mission, right, to provide that kind of support service, because you're already poised to do that in the system. Yes. And, and we have, in a lot of ways, started that. My CASA program has a job readiness component to it, where our volunteers are working with the youth, the older youth, and partnering with our job readiness resources in the county to not only make the youth aware of the resource, but to literally get them there, to bring them, to attend with them, to help them get on Zoom now because they can participate remotely, but to find not just a job readiness program, but the right job readiness program for them. So we have a career assessment form we ask the young people to fill out and we use that data to match them with the program that's going to help them to either achieve their career interest or to kind of help them fill in some of those life skills, soft skills that might be missing in terms of like getting ready, job ready. So we partner with our summer youth employment program for our younger teens so that they can have a summer job. And then with our older youth, we want to set them up with programs that provide internships or more progressive employment so that they go from like that, you know, very part-time to maybe something with a little more behind it to give them the experience so that they can get hired for the next thing and then the next thing. And, you know, and that helps them to be successful if they move on into some training programs or into college so that they can pursue the career of their choice. 
Wow, that's a terrific program. But just to make sure that I understand, not all CASAs would have this career program, the one that you're describing, right? That's correct. Okay. They don't. Um, it depends. Every CASA program is nimble enough that they can respond to the needs of their own area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so for us, 70% of the people we work with are teenagers. Uh, we realized early on that we uh, really needed to focus on transition skills for our youth. And, you know, early on, it was homelessness that had us worried. But we realized that if they didn't have employment skills, then homelessness was just around the corner. And so, you know, we stepped back and realized that we needed to focus on education and employment so that they had the chance, you know, not to be homeless, not because somebody else was going to pay their rent, but because they could pay their rent. Yeah, that makes sense. I believe we're probably coming to the end of our time together, but I do want to ask you, and I'm going to think the answer is yes. Do you accept donations? And if you do, how could people donate to your program? So yes, we are a nonprofit organization and all donations are tax deductible. You can make a donation in the same way that you can learn about becoming a volunteer, which is at pgcasa.org. That's P like Prince, G like George, casa.org. Okay. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to ask one last question. If you could please finish this sentence. The thing that I love most about my organization is... And how would you finish that? The people. That was easy. Yeah. The people that work there and the people that volunteer with CASA, they make my job easy and they make our organization look great every day. Wow. That's terrific. Well, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me today, Anne-Marie, and I'm really excited about the work that you're doing. Thank you for helping us understand better the whole volunteer model that you have there and the programs and the services that you offer. I am excited that other people who may not be aware of what CASA does will be exposed to it through this podcast, and I really appreciate you sharing it with me. It was my pleasure to talk to you today, Lynn. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Well, for those who have listened to this podcast to the end, thank you very much for doing so. We try to put a podcast out every two to three weeks or so. We interview leaders of organizations that are out there supporting young people who are preparing to age out or who have already aged out to help them be able to transition to adulthood successfully. So thank you again for listening and keep checking our website for the next one.